This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. this hour are Denzel Caldwell, who is a community organizer and co-founder of the Black Nashville Assembly. He has a bachelor's in economics from Morehouse, shout out to all the Morehouse men out there, and a master's from the University of Oklahoma. He's an organizer for the Nashville Economic Justice Alliance and a member and survival instructor at the Water Bear Cooperative, and he serves as the wellness and preparedness advisor for Hood Medicine, one of our favorite groups to partner with. Also joining uh, Denzel is Dolio Durant. He is the Hood Medicine co-founder and resident hacker, which means he's already a superhero in our eyes. Uh, he attained his SB in mechanical engineering at MIT and works as a software developer and lead technical instructor at Zip Code Wilmington, specializing in full stack application development and data engineering. He is also, y'all, one of the lead MCs in the hip hop bluegrass band, Gangsta Grass. Y'all already know this is going to be a good conversation. Welcome to both of you here to the Larry Daniel Favors Show. It's a pleasure. Hey, how you doing? Thank you. Thank you. And thank y'all both for the work that you're doing. You know, we've been discussing um, the need for us to be prepared for what's coming. And we, we have that conversation a lot when it comes to electoral politics. Uh, but there are other ways that we also need to be thinking about sustainability, uh, food security, prepping, self-defense, and, and finding creative ways that are going to allow us to really center our own healing uh, from the racial trauma that we are experiencing and being able to provide healing mechanisms uh, as well. And today we are here to discuss community preparedness. And I think it would be appropriate for us to begin by asking you both, uh, and Denzel, I'm going to start with you, where are we headed and what exactly do we need to prepare for? Uh, and can you also tell us a little bit more about your work as an organizer and how you're working to encourage citizenship engagement uh, and community involvement with policy. Yeah, so uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Denzel, um, and as it was mentioned before, I'm an organizer with the Black Nashville Assembly, and uh, essentially what we are is a grassroots participatory democracy project where we're trying to create um, people-centered governance um, mm -hmm. as opposed to this sort of, um, you know, uh, <laughs> sham of a representative democracy, right? Um, we, we're, we're trying to uh, give uh, help people develop the muscles for determining their own policy um, agendas, uh, being able to directly address their needs, um, not only through policy, but especially through policy, given how that's the current mechanism for us to um, get the public goods that we need to our communities. Um, we've done things from um, public safety surveys, uh, getting a feel for what people feel makes them uh, feel safe and how they can translate that into policy. Um, and then we have uh, assemblies and mass meetings where we talk to people about um, different aspects of our governance structure as it currently exists from the judicial system, given our upcoming uh, judicial elections to like at the legislative body as well. Um, as far as what we need to prepare for, um, it's really just the crumbling of the uh, society that we're living in right now, the pandemic hasn't ended, despite what some people say. Um, it has uh, peeled back this very thin layer of um, safety and normalcy that we, uh, you know, are used to. Um, and so we, we're seeing it in the overloading of our healthcare system. We're seeing it in the um, sort of supply chain issues that we have throughout different sectors in the economy. 
Um, and, and it's affecting our everyday life. Um, and so part of the preparedness is how do we make sure that we are getting the appropriate materials, basic needs um, in a way uh, that is resilient to um, a lot of the uh, crumbling uh, systems that we're so used to uh, dealing with daily. You know, what's interesting is that we've been excluded from the vote and being able to participate electorally far longer than we have been included. And yet we have always had to be concerned about preparing our community, caring for our community, building our community, uh, regardless of the political engagement that we were or were not allowed to have. So this idea of, yeah, we, we, we work on the vote and we work on, you know, we work on the structures. But then when you realize your structures are crumbling, when you realize, oh, I thought we had a healthcare system and then you was like, oh, but then here comes a pandemic to show us that we really don't, then it, it makes you realize that being a part of a thriving community, and today is Kujichagalia Day on the Kwanzaa calendar because Kujichagalia came on a Monday. Self-determination is really freaking important when your entire society structures are beginning to crumble. Um, and so Dolio, I'd like for you to, to tell us in your perspective uh, where it is you think we're heading and what we're preparing, what we need to prepare for. And if you could also give us some insight into your work at Zip Code Wilmington and how technically skills also play a really powerful role in preparing our community for the future of whatever work is going to look like. Well, um, much like Denzel was, in, was, was, was alluding to is that um, where we end up going with this is really has to do with how well prepared we are um, when it comes to this. Um, if a lot of it, uh, a lot of it plays on relying on, I guess, the wisdom of our elders who mm. didn't um, have a lot of the, I guess, the cosmetic op opportunities that they put um, in front of us sort of as a distraction, really, um, because, you know, it's it's important to be politically engaged and it's important to, to, to vote and all of that, but it's, a, it, but it's more important to hold your, your elected officials accountable mm. for the vote that they supposedly earned from you. Um, we, we, we can't be afraid to to change our alliances based upon our needs. Wow. Um, and and um, whether that be a party affiliation, it just so happens that, you know, one party seems to be more egregiously offensive than the other. Um, but, you know, the, periodically they change hands as, as history tells you. That's right. Uh, so so for the, as far as being prepared, we should be prepared to to for the eventuality that something like this would completely com collapse because it wasn't built to support us as a community. It was, its intention was to exclude us from the beginning. Mm. Um, but um, we can't let that actually discourage us from getting engaged because it, you know, power concedes to power and numbers engaged and motivated and working in unison towards a particular goal and not afraid to take that support away when it, when uh, when the time comes, um, we'll we'll get results. Um, economics um, is heavily uh, a part in this, um, which is kind of what I uh, what part I play in the the uh, I guess the educational realm uh, because the engineering, technology, high tech, software, computing, all of those are realms in which. There is a huge deficit of us as a community Pass. being there, not not because we don't have the ability um, 
or have the skills or have the ability to retain this information and, and perform these tasks. It's more of a lack of access a lot of times and a lot of times just not even knowing that there are avenues available um, to, to, to get into the realm. Um, Zip Code Wilmington is um, a nonprofit organization that operates out of Wilmington, Delaware. Um, and its main purpose is to reinvest into the Delaware Valley area um, specifically starting with Wilmington and Delaware, particularly. Um, and uh, we train people to become um, basically entry level engineers um, at various companies, Fortune 500 companies, Fortune 200 companies, you know, we're talking about uh, a city that Wilmington, most people, most people in the, in the country don't know that Wilmington, Delaware, is home to like 75 plus percent of the, the, the highest earning corporations in America. That's right. Delaware so, has extremely friendly laws for corporate entities. So if you wanted right. to create a corporate power base, uh, incorporating in the state of Delaware might be one of the ways you avoid a lot of scrutiny, avoid a lot of oversight, uh, pay minimal taxes. It can be very beneficial for corporate entities to be in that space. Right. I mean, I myself have an LLC in, in Delaware, um, but it's it's a it's a place where you can see the most opulent wealth footsteps away from the most abject poverty. Wow. Because, you know, a uh, couple of two years ago, I don't know what the actual numbers are for this year, but at least two years ago and a year before Wilmington, Delaware, pretty much led the country in teen shootings. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, Delaware? Um, a lot of. Wilmington, Delaware. I feel like there's a Wilmington. whole lot of people right now who owe Chicago an apology. <laughs> right. I mean, teen shootings, because there's a lot of a lot of gang activity that happens in, in, in Wilmington, Delaware, um, just like a lot of, you know, big cities where stuff happens. But because Wilmington, Delaware is not necessarily a big city, right. it doesn't get the same type of attention. It is adjacent to a big city, which is Philadelphia. Um, so a lot of its economy is reliant on the surrounding areas, as well as, you know, the, the country at large because of the co corporate environment. But I started teaching mostly, mostly because of the fact that as an engineer, I would be going to conventions for my discipline, for my field. And most of the times I and another colleague of mine were the only brothers there. Mm. And we're talking thousands of people in attendance. Wow. And you're maybe talking about two or three four maybe five brothers at tops and it was usually because we got you were mostly getting confused for being the other brothers and they would always get confused for being us but it's okay because we knew each other hmm. but the thing that we decided at that point after going to you know dozens of these conferences was we need to make more of us mm. a pipeline uh, right um now, Wilmington, Delaware, uh, it, it was a what is was a, is a is a is a community where it gets it gets left out a lot of the the I don't know the, the bounty that comes out of Wilmington, Delaware. But so with this way, we've actually able to get uh, our students within twelve weeks. Um, well, they they've been trained from from not having written a single line of code to being entry-level developers that can hold wow. their own. Um, our, our, our developers hit the ground running and we've, we, we um, are, because we cast a wide net 
as far as recruiting for students. Um, and because it's, it's geared towards non-traditional pathways, we get people who, you know, were bagging groceries, cutting mm. hair, pushing shopping carts, you know, and, and they go, we, the average income hovers around, you know, thirteen to $16,000 a year. And average coming out, you know, hovers around 76. Wow. You know, we even so, had a couple of students come out with, a, you know, six figure offers when they came out. One of the reasons I love this example is because there are a lot of people right now who find themselves being the only or one of just a handful. And they're thinking we need more of us. And not all of us are empowered to create a pipeline like you all did, but that to me really does speak to an approach to preparedness uh, and thinking about how we can build pipelines that will allow our people to access greater sources of power. And when we think about the, the communal issues that we're facing now and the issues that are coming, if you think, for example, if we were to do a mini threat assessment, if you will, uh, we've got citizen racialized violence, we've got state sanctioned violence. Uh, Dolly, I want to stick with you for just a second. If you could could you speak about uh, our communities who are constantly under threat uh we had a uh you know examples earlier this year where uh there was an alarming uh level of reporting that talked about the way that right-wing extremists are stockpiling guns we have seen throughout the pandemic uh, that there has been and quite frankly even before the pandemic a real uptick in the expression of racialized violence towards black and other non-white communities can you talk with us uh with your engineering brain and we say that because we respect engineers here because we know that they're problem solvers. Uh, but can you talk with us? And Denzel, I'm coming to you next, so don't think I'm letting you off the hood. Uh, but can you talk with us about how important it is to take in the reality of what's happening right now? Because a lot of us are living in an America that we wish existed. And I am here to try to help make sure that we are clear about the America in which we really live. They are, in my perspective, actively, proactively, um, aggressively using every lever of power to bring us back to the plantation slavery era. And I don't just necessarily mean with us picking cotton in field. You don't have to have that in order to have a slave economy. Uh, can you talk with us about your understanding of the threat assessment uh, that we have right now? Uh, and what it is that we should be thinking about as we prepare to grapple with this. You're an engineer. You solve problems. You just talked about a major problem that you're helping to solve. What would your problem-solving skills tell you about what we're dealing with today? Um, I'm not necessarily certain, certain if as if they're being necessarily more um, egregious with what they're doing. It's more... It's, we live it's just we live in an, in an era where we have a greater access to the information and it's mm. easier and quicker to get this stuff to the public um uh, i grew up in pensacola florida that's uh matt gates's district wow um so so i know for a fact that this is nothing new they've been doing this they've been consistent with it mm. the only difference is they now have the tools in which to disseminate the, the, the information quicker. So it's more visible because you can put it on a phone and say, look, I told you there were skinheads in my neighborhood. Wow. Whereas before, when you told somebody 10 years ago that the skinheads were dropping off care packages at your house, they wouldn't believe you. Right. You know, they, they've always been doing it. Um, the important thing is to make sure that we are aware that they are still at it. Mm. Um, and to, and to, and to, to, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but stay ready. So you don't have to get ready. 
Let's talk about that stay ready part because a lot of us ain't ready. A lot of us right now is like, oh, Lord, I know it's something coming, but I just don't know what. Uh, Denzel, when we talk about stay ready, when we think about the fact that we, as Dolio just mentioned, before the skinheads were giving care packages and everybody knew it but couldn't prove it. Now we can prove it because we have it live in video or they're live streaming themselves uh, in the engaged in the very act. When it comes to thinking about just the practicalities of self-defense, the practicalities of community defense. Can you talk with us a bit about your work and why it's important? uh, And it's it's important that people learn practical skills for how to defend themselves, particularly when we think about uh, the threat that is posed by racialized violence and state-sanctioned violence. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, So for context, uh, I am... Uh, part of I'm the sergeant of arms for uh, the Middle Tennessee Black Gun Club. Um, we are actually a brand new um, organization um, that started about a year ago, um, and our and our whole goal is to um, be able to educate our community about not only firearms but just preparedness for uh, individual and community safety. Um, I think when it comes to this. Uh, the, community and self-defense is actually multifaceted, right? Um, So uh, in in the immediate sense, when we're talking about um, community and self-defense, you know, a lot of folks will immediately, of course, go to martial arts, firearms training, which is critically important. But part of it is more than just what most people do in this country, uh, which is, oh, I'm going to go to the store, find a gun that looks nice, and then leave it on the shelf. No, that that actually has to become a part of your um, daily practice, right? It's not just by purchasing the firearm, it's also learning about the laws in not only in your area or in your state or city, but also federally. Um, just as a matter of situational awareness, it's also uh, being able to make training a regular part of your life. A lot of people think that um, going to get your license is some, somehow qualifies as training that doesn't even remotely uh, uh, count as training. Um, it's just a surface level overview of what you need to know as a licensed, uh, carry carrier. Um, you also need to think about the implications that that has as someone who is black that is armed, right? Uh, with the history of this country, when we think about uh, from the resistance uh, on the plantations down to various uprisings that, that uh, to this modern moment, um, being armed has, that impl- has a lot of implications um, uh, and be- being black in this country. I think it's particularly important that you are aware of your, your region and your area um, and its relationship to you because I'm with me being in Nashville in the South, um, that looks different than mm-hmm. maybe, you know, in Delaware or this place like New York or the West coast. Right. Um, so being aware of that. Um, but I think outside of that, um, even outside of the martial arts and the firearms, um, instruction, um, things that people tend to overlook are things like stopping, stop the bleed training, right. Medical training, first aid, um, those are things that are arguably just as important, if not more likely to be used. Um, and that's not to discount the need for firearms training or martial arts training, but, um, you know, those those things, communications, uh, whether we're talking about ham radio in the event that, you know, um, a lot of our uh, typical communications such as cell phones and, and the Internet goes out, uh, having radio training um, and being able to know how to navigate that um, and, and build community. But even beyond the like skill acquisition and training, 
right? It's really developing a, a sense of intentional community um, because you can have all the skills in the world, but if you don't have a community to survive and navigate through any changes, any like crumbling societies or anything, then it's not going to matter, right? You have to have that network of folks that are not only your folks, but also people that are intentional about, you know, preparing for uh, this crumbling that's happening uh, around us. And so, um, but I definitely agree with Dolio, like um, this is not new at all. Um, uh, we, we, many folks have, have experienced it throughout the United States, um, you know, this racialized violence. I will say that I think what's uh, somewhat unique about this moment is that um, the far right um, um, and, and so many um, uh, uh, white supremacist groups are consolidating political state power, right? right. Um, here in uh, Tennessee, um, in East Tennessee in particular, there was actually a, um, a, a cult-like organization that was uh, centered around a, uh, AR-15s and had a lot of white supremacist uh, underpinnings and their ideologies. They're securing state offices, right? Wow. Um, and then even on the state side here in uh, Tennessee, of course, we have our permitless carry, which is intentionally written in a way that makes uh, unlawful possession a felony instead of a misdemeanor. But we also have things that are on the table, um, and I'm not sure where it is in the in the uh, life of the bill process, but we had one that extended the definition of a law enforcement officer to anyone that had um, a concealed carry permit. And so we're seeing oh sort of gosh. these um, reconstruction era-esque um, sort of like um, movements on both in the state and non-state um, arena um, where we are seeing these uh, moments where we, we might see hyper- um, uh, hyper uh, uh, racialized uh, violence and 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 persecution, and so part of us. Um, and for me, when I when I think about the the electoral realm or the political realm, it's less uh, so a matter of you know wanting to participate in a system as Dolio said wasn't designed for us, but it's more so from a matter of practicality of like how can we secure. Um, certain resources for our communities that we need through the state apparatus um, mm -hmm. such that we can help make easier our, our, our process of preparing ourselves, whether it's through, um, you know, uh, martial arts or, or medical training or, uh, you know, community programs that we have um, to train our children or, or, you know, get our folks ready. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very involved process. A lot of uh, our folks don't know that they don't know, which right. that secondhand ignorance, which, uh, you know, part of my instruction as a firearm instructor and a martial arts instructor is helping people to realize what they don't know so that they can get that certain level of urgency to prepare themselves and their community um, for, for, you know, things that are inevitable. I'm feeling very much uh, the spirit of Octavia Butler right now, and particularly her book *Parable of the Sower* and *Parable of the Talents*. Uh, and it's a book; those are it's a, it's a couple of books that terrify me. Uh, the first time I read Parable of the Sower was right as Hurricane Katrina uh, was landing. I had also just finished the bar exam. So it was a real, I was already traumatized spiritually and emotionally. Uh, but then Hurricane Katrina comes and I, I kept saying, Denzel, you know, where's the help? Where, how, where are the helicopters? Where are the planes? And then after about day two or three of the footage, I was like, would they please stop showing all the black people needing help? Because as long as you're showing black people, ain't no help coming. And then I realized that's who needed the help. And 
they were the least prepared to give help to us because they didn't care. Had we seen a stadium of white people uh, in New Orleans, we would have seen boats, planes, submarines, anything that was necessary to get those people out. And that's when I, and I mean, this was years ago, but that's when I realized we are going to have to do like the lead character in Parable of the Sower. We have to be prepared in ways that, quite frankly, up until that point, and I was very young at that time, I just had not even really considered in any meaningful ways. So when we're talking about getting ready and being uh, prepared as a community. Yes, there's uh, gun training and learning how to manage a gun, but I got to be honest with you. The first time I went to a gun range, it occurred to me, if I were really in an issue where there where race was a problem and folks who was white supremacists was coming at me with arms, nine times out of 10, they've been practicing how to use them guns since before they could walk. They don't just know how to shoot. They know how to shoot while you're there in motion. They know how to clean a weapon. They can assemble a weapon. They can do a whole lot of things. Uh, but the reality is we, you know, I'm right now making up a whole lot of time um, that frankly, I can't really compete with. And as I see it in the chat notes, uh, you pointed out that there were other places that offered help to Katrina. Mexico and Cuba, not to Katrina, to New Orleans uh, with Hurricane Katrina. But this government said no. The government said, yeah, we see the suffering of these people. We thank you, Mexico, for your offer to help. Thank you, Cuba, for your offer to help. But now we good. We're good here. When that is the government's posture towards your community, when the society in which your government is operating is itself crumbling, because frankly, this foundation was never going to be able to sustain itself beyond uh, weapons, beyond physical training. There are other types of preparation that we need to think about. You mentioned the stop bleed preparation. And I'm reminded again, I hate to mention Chicago twice in this context, but I remember reading a few years ago about uh, some young people who were like, listen, we call the cops. We call for an ambulance after somebody gets shot. Don't nobody come till hour, two hours later. So we're going to have to learn how to stop this bleeding and and basically engage in medical triage on the street because ain't nobody coming to help us. Uh, Dolio, when you hear that and when you think about the the reality that we're discussing today, um, let's talk about what it means to really change the way we're thinking about our participation in this society and, and, and how do we really divorce ourselves mentally from at our hearts being still in a state of disbelief that this might not work. I think a lot of us are operating on the hope of progress and the dreams of, you know, one day we will progress enough towards racial equality. But I'm reminded that Thomas Jefferson was like, this ain't never going to work unless we get rid of them. They ain't never going to forget. And we ain't never going to get rid of our privilege. And that was Thomas Jefferson hundreds of years ago. So how do we as a society no, How do we as, as our community, our, I'm talking to us now, us, us, how do we sort of mentally make the leap that is necessary that goes from believing and putting all of our eggs in the bucket of progress and eventually getting to some sort of freedom and equity to really thinking yeah, this might not work and we ain't really got nowhere to go. So we got to figure it out here. What can we do to sort of mentally get into the space where being prepared is something we're even open to discussing more fundamentally with our family, our friends and the people around us. Well, one of them is a, uh is acknowledging a, a fact that we have one of the one of the slogans that we've adopted at hood medicine is all we got is us mm. there are no black helicopters coming mm. you know um the the you know you, you you noticed what happened in katrina it was it was set up to be so you know um that that what you witnessed was the crumbling infrastructure of 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 a city that had been denied resources 
because it was majority black. That's right. Now that the gentrification is happening, you see the resources are pouring in in abundance. Shocker. Um, so and once once we can get the, the the majority of us to understand that, OK, there is no help coming, no matter how much you want to believe in the system, the system itself is not going to save us. Mm. This game, the game, you know, if the if, if the game is 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 rigged, of course, but there are ways to play it. You you can in in a way to have an advantage even in a rigged game, you know. Um, some of the the people that I've been you know involved with over the years, and we've been you know having our discussions and organizing organizing, and our, we we take our uh, we take on the problems in different um, aspects. You know, uh, whether it be education and the inequality that we notice that our, our students are getting in, you know, primary education and, and secondary education, mm. uh, for getting access to, you know, um, technolo technology and, and getting into the tech fields, um, for making sure that people are, are prepared for or, or even getting uh, getting themselves healthier by, you know, doing things like growing food at home. Um, there's many different ways to do that, whether you live in a city or in the country. That's right. Um, which is, you know, I, I'm a country boy, so I was kind of always did it. Um, but now that I live in the city, I still do it. But it's mostly because uh, of when when I moved up north and started living in the cities, I noticed the food deserts and like, OK, you can't get fresh fruit mm. and vegetables in certain areas for like, you know, sometimes miles around, you know, mm. um, so what and, and a lot of that just has to do with just us being able to come together to 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 fill in those gaps that we know are there, you know, yeah. if we know uh, we we have to. It's hard it, and it's, it seems difficult in, a, in an age of, of technology and an individuality to to bring back the, the notion of community. You mm. know, um, I, I try to do my best to to engage with youth as much as possible because, as I've noticed over you know the decades, there's been a widening gap between elders and youth because, yes. and, and and one and once you remove that uh, connection, you lose the ability to hold that community together. Mm. Like if I can't talk to Big Mama about wow. something, then I lose everything that she's that she's experienced about how to navigate this system. The way that the system works now is different, but it's still built upon the same foundation. So you need to know where it came from to understand where it's going. Wow. I've heard recently that every time an elder passes, it's like a library has burned. Uh, you no longer have access to that information. And when you think about the fact that f figuratively, uh, the relationships between the generations within our community have been very fractured. And, and that in my perspective, is also a function of white supremacist involvement, uh, the flooding of our community with drugs, uh, the removal of, of an entire uh, segment of our population into incarceration and death. Um, and so, you know, even that fracturing relationship between the generations and, and sort of skipping generations where wisdom should be being transferred intergenerationally down, that too is a function uh, of the society in which we live. A, a, a little exercise I've been sort of taking myself through mentally, and, and Denzel, I'd love your perspective on this, is what would it look like if the systems that currently provide for all of our needs our water purification, our food, um, the electricity in our communities. Uh, what if somebody, enough people, 
took over the state legislatures. We've been talking a lot about elections. And they voted, you know what? We're no longer going to provide water to the black sections of the state. We're no longer going to provide food service and delivery into the uh, grocery stores in their communities. They're already in a food desert. They're not even going to miss it. What if the people in power, which, and this is what they're actively working on, what if they are successful at gaining enough votes at the state, city, uh, municipal, and, and federal level so that they can choose using the apparatus of the state, using the legal structure and, and methods of, of passing laws, what if they were to decide, you know what, we're not messing with them no more. We done. We, done had, we, we want the old America back, and until we get it, we are not going to provide them from anything. If they were to wholesale say, no, nah, we're not doing this anymore, like Flint, Michigan, like what we saw in Katrina, what would we do? Right. Like, do we have enough dolios to help us figure out how to get the water? Do we have enough Denzels to figure out how to keep safe? Do we have enough uh, pipers and plumbers and fitters and just basic people who can fill in the functions of providing for our communities what our government currently provides? Sort of. If the government were to decide, yeah, no, we're not doing that no more, because, again, the government is the people. And if the people who happen to be white supremacists are most adept at getting into governmental spaces and they can make those decisions, what would it look like if we had to really supply our needs on our own? Denzel, when you think about uh, food security, when you think about all of the things that we've discussed so far, health inequality, what can we be doing now to take this little morbid exercise that I play in my own head? What can we do to be thinking about how to lay the foundation? Because this is not an overnight discussion. This ain't like a weekend retreat. All right, we good. We got you. You're going to be the secretary. You're going to be the president. Like, this is not that. This is really asking our communities to think way more long-term and to be way more assertive in community control and providing for our own needs. What say you to the, the, that concern and that fear? Yeah, so um, part of part of what you uh, had alluded to in that question was that that's already happening, yeah. right? Like in so yes. many different places. Yes. To various like black rural spaces throughout the South and other parts in the country. Um, there, there's already that level of disinvestment and in, in basic resources. Um, because Flint was just one of many, that's many right. uh, small towns that have that issue. Um, and so I, I think the 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 first answer to that to to begin that journey is to address like get an analysis or an assessment of what needs are already absent in my current condition, because there's a lot of black folks in different parts of the country that when they heard that question, they were like, that's, that's where I'm living at now. Right. And so they just closed my hospital. They just, they don't have a court. I can't get to the DMV. They closing all the institutions. It's happening now. Right. Right. So, so like first getting that assessment, that very like sober assessment of what are the needs? Like, okay, my water's not working properly. Uh, you know, um, uh, I don't have uh, immediate access to hospitals. I don't, um, the food here is garbage because we live in a food desert. Mm. Get that assessment, like that sober analysis of just what, what's there, like minus all of the illusions. Yes. Um, and when I say illusions, I don't mean just what we see online, but I'm also thinking about just the things that were fed about this electoral process and what can and can't be done, mm. right? Um, just, just disabusing ourselves of all those illusions. And then saying, okay, what are the skills that we need in order to immediately and then sustainably over a long period of time um, address those needs, right? Mm-hmm. So you talked about some folks, uh, some kids in uh, Chicago, for example, that were just like, hey, 
you know, the hospitals aren't coming anytime soon. So we need to be able to learn how to stop the bleed at the very least and be serve as medical triage until we can get some support. Right. Maybe that looks like, okay, um, I don't have immediate access to think uh, to um, the medical facility. So get a group of my folks to learn, stop the bleed. Um, maybe there are some folks who might be interested in getting a deeper knowledge of, you know, medical practices. So you, uh, uh, like scrounge up funds amongst your folks, raise money to get them the training um, and and uh, education they need and the supplies to be able to serve as that, but also be able to teach others how to be able to functionally use some of these things. They don't have to be masters at it per se, but uh, being able to teach it well enough to be able to functionally show others how to perform immediate tasks, whether this is medical, communication with radios, water filtration, self-defense, um, anything of that sort. Um, being able to get uh, a group of people that can uh, disseminate that information to folks in mass, I think would be really crucial. And I think the other part of that, of course, is once you know it, you need to have the materials to make it happen That's too. Right. So there's also that question of trying to find ways to collectivize and being honest about where folks are, because you may be um, in an environment where folks ain't got a lot of money, so you might have to, you know, extend a little bit outward and find different ways to get the resources in order to get that training and and, and get those needs met. So finding what you need um, in order to get the knowledge and the supplies um, to make that happen. But again, as I mentioned earlier, part of a, a large ingredient and, and significant ingredient to make that happen is for uh, collective determination to make these things happen. It can't just be an individual project. It can't really even be like a small group per se, although that would be a great start. You really want to work on getting like uh, a, a collective, as much of a collective investment in a directly addressing those needs as possible. And then from there, you'll be able to do some of the things that I mentioned earlier. This is Make not sense. going to be a one-off conversation. We, we got just a second left. Go ahead, Dolio. You, you can have the, the okay. final comment. <clears throat> I want to piggyback off of that. One of part of that is actually also in the works of, um, because we've some of us have actually put together and done the numbers that there's a number of municipalities, counties, and quite frankly, at least two states that we could actually take over with just targeted migration. Wow. Um, a good book to read, um, I don't, it's, it's a book called The Devil You Know mm. uh, by Charles, Charles Blow. Um, and it kind of gave, gave, gives an overview of, of how that action can be taken. Um, I'm, the state that I'm working in right now is one of those states that we're huh. targeting. Okay. So we're going to have to have this as, a, as an ongoing discussion because as our society, so, so I feel like we were a friend of mine, shout out to Brother Mike, uh, he always says we have to be doctor and patient at the same time. And so while we are sort of diagnosing uh, the deficiencies within ourselves and within our own community, um, as the doctor or as the patient, we are also having to come up with unique ways of meeting those deficiencies and creating, uh, and, and we are quite frankly very creative, shout out to the Kaumba Kwanzaa principle, extremely creative people, uh, creating the solutions 
that we need to resolve those deficiencies. And I feel like right now, in addition to being very aggressive uh, with our electoral engagement, we have to be very aggressive with our community development engagement. And I don't just mean creating a 501c3 and organizing and getting a nonprofit and doing some good charity work. That's great. But I'm talking about let's ask the fundamental question. And I want my list, my audience to listen to, to answer this question now in just the, the 45 seconds that we have left before we conclude. Um, if the government were to do to your community what they did in Katrina and abandon you and forbade other, forbid other people from coming in to help you, allow armed militias to prevent you from accessing the resources which should be rightfully yours, what would you do? And if you can't answer that question, that just lets me know we got a hell of a lot of work to do and we don't have a whole lot of time to figure it out, but we damn sure are going to, ooh, darn it, it's not Friday. I try not to cuss on a Monday. We're darn sure going to use the <laughs> skills that we have and the time that we have to be as creative as we can to think about these issues um, and to prepare. I want to thank both of you for being with us this morning. We have to leave it here. Uh, this will not be the last of this conversation. Um, I'm just seeing this crumbling happening, and I'm realizing that, y'all, we got to get ready. But the beautiful thing is we literally don't just have enslavement in our DNA. We created math, science, and the foundations of architectural structures and, and medical sciences that today are still standing and thriving. We can do this. I just need us to know we have to. And then once we know that we have to, we believe that we can, we can certainly resolve it. I want to thank you both for being with us today. I'm going to be, we're going to be tweeting out your information. It's been a real pleasure.